<coughs> I came down basically to visit my brother, whom I hadn't seen for a number of years. He's older than I am, so I told him, it's better to see people before they die than visit them after they're dead. <coughs> we have been looking basically at foundations because of what is happening in our nation and we're watching the whole foundation crumble concerning our society. The whole issue of marriage, who is a man, who is a woman, the whole issue which I would never have dreamed of 20 years ago has now hit our nation and is uniform over the world in nations. So the question is foundations. <coughs> so the thought of this time I was with you here was to lay a foundation and the understanding of why we find ourselves where we are today in this is given to us in the Bible. Prophetically we are told why we now face what we do. The reason is, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I learnt more from this fisherman than I learnt in my years in university, in geology and all that. I learnt from this man, speaking 2,000 years ago or writing down what we have in the last days. He defines exactly what will take place and it is being exactly fulfilled. He said... <coughs> There will come those that are mockers and scoffers, walking after their own lusts or their evil desires and they're going to say, that is, this is the teaching that they will have. Everything goes on as it always has. We look back over history, they're saying, there has been no cataclysmic event in our world that touches the whole world. Everything you see today, cyclones, hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, whatever you look at, have always been here. Death has always been here. And over millions of years we look back over history and we're told today that is the history of our world. Now the Bible claims absolute authority for defining for us the true history of our world. And if I come to the Bible and I am honest in interpreting the Bible, if God is sufficiently insistent that in six days he made heaven, earth, sea and everything that is in them, and he doesn't say it once, he repeats himself, he means what he says. So the timing of the Bible we are limited to 6,000 years about. So the whole history of universe, angels, created things, the world we live in is only 6,000 years. The genealogy of Jesus limits us from Adam to Christ 4,000 years about. You cannot go any longer. And if Adam is the first man and there are no missing links back to the apes and monkeys, etc., and there aren't in the fossil record for all that's in the media and you're taught at school. There's, there's hoaxes, there's frauds, Piltdown Man, you can go right through the history of supposed missing links and they've been proven false. 
Your Bible is a history book that has given us a true account of why we're here today and has defined for us why we are facing today the issue of marriage. What is marriage? What is man? What is a woman? Can you change from a man to woman or a woman to man? Like, or the whole thing is confusion in the practical world in which we live. And when we give up our understanding, there is a harvest. It lies ahead, and those who deal in ethics are beginning to tremble at what lies ahead. So we are coming to a basis. Now what I've gone through is taken you through Peter's saying. They will deny, in the last days they will deny. The earth was formed out of water and under water. Day two of creation prepares us for the flood that would follow 1,656 years after Adam is created, the flood took this world. God is exact. His descriptions are exact of what took place because Noah's in the ark. He didn't see it, but you have a step-by-step progression describing exactly what took place outside the ark. And it's done repeated. Three times generally you will say he defines the same event three times, three times, three times. Why? When you read the account is that there? Because God has put a principle in the scripture and it's this. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. Moses had it in Deuteronomy. Jesus spoke it on earth. Paul used it. It's an absolute authority to safeguard us from error. If God says something three times, it means it's true. And so the scripture is built with that in it. It's inbuilt into the account. So we may say, God is saying without any excuse, this is exactly what happened. So when we come to the account, they will deny creation, they will deny a worldwide flood, the deluge that destroyed everything. That is out of the thinking today in every university you will go to. Except you go to maybe the Liberty University where you will have men there that will say the Bible is real history, yet your students still have to understand the philosophy of the world if we're going to stand against and understand what they're talking about. So sweeping the world Our history is wiped out. It's called revisionist history. And it didn't occur. Meaning we can naturally explain how the world got here without God. And it is the root of atheism. That's why communism, I know when the the, um, uprising appeared in China, (coughs) in Tiananmen Square, and there was that killing off of the Chinese who rose up. I listened in the news, because I'm an old man. All right, I can remember back. I listened to the news. And you know what the leader of China said? We must teach our people communism and science. Now, what's he mean? He simply means evolution. Because evolution is the basis for atheism. No God. So, what's he saying? Teach them that 
and we take the thought of God out of their minds. He does not exist. So that has happened in our country. And in our country, that is the education system that we have committed ourselves to. So the pressure in the future is going to become intense and the call to stand will become more strong and the consequences of standing in the days ahead will maybe cost you nearly everything. That is the position we are in as Christians who we believe the Bible. Now I have covered this history as Peter says, it will be like this in the last days. And Peter has described a history starting from the beginning to the end. <coughs> Much of what I've said, as you've realised, has covered areas which are not very edifying and building up. They're just exposing why we are in the state we are and, the co and how it's affected us as Christians, our decisions, our values and everything. What I want to do this morning is take the beginning and link it to the end. You just sang <coughs> from Revelation 5 verse 11, all right? The scenario, the picture you get in heaven and it is hard to grasp because John in chapter 4 of Revelation takes you into the throne of God and gives an amazing description, a revelation of what it was like, which has to be interpreted in the light of the description, in the light of Scripture. Get to Revelation 5 and the whole issue is the scroll in the right hand of his Father on the throne. It is sealed and a loud voice, a trumpet voice, is heard in heaven, on earth and under the earth with one question. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll so it can be read? There's only one sealed book in your Bible, and I'm not an SDA, but I heard them as I walked out last time about Revelation. Revelation unseals the book of Daniel. That is why it's there. Daniel is a seal book. Revelation is not a seal book. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy because the time is at hand. Three times in the book of Daniel, seal up the words of this book. The time is in the distant future. The time lies ahead, meaning it's going to be unsealed. Let me quickly take you through your understanding in this because I question a lot of things. When Jesus came the first time into this world and is about to begin his ministry, after he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, he is tempted, tested, and he comes back sinless and is full of the power of the Holy Spirit, we are told. He goes back to the hometown, Nazareth, to the synagogue where he was brought up in Nazareth. As his custom was, He's a Jew, he's circumcised, he worships in the synagogue. But this time, as he goes in, he's about 30 years old, he goes into the synagogue. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it, no chapters, no verses, it's just there and he's unrolling it. He's looking for words. And he says, he starts reading, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor deliverance to the captives, etc. Finally, he says, the acceptable year of the Lord. Close it up, 
handed it back, sat down. And he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What's he saying? This is my mapped out ministry. This is why I've come. And from that point on, he had only one object in view, the cross. And that mapped out his whole ministry. You can read it in the Gospels. It details his three and a half years about of ministry. It's all contained in that statement. So if that's his first coming, if God is going to be consistent, you can expect this. At his second coming, maybe the same kind of thing will happen. If the scriptures define clearly his first coming and ministry, maybe there are scriptures that will define clearly his second coming and ministry. Don't you think so? If God is consistent, there is only one seal. There are 66 books in your Bible. There is only one book sealed. No other book is said to be sealed, but three times. Daniel 7, Daniel 12 twice. Seal up the words of this prophecy. It's the distant future. It's the time of the end. That's what these are all about. So it's sealed up. What is described in Daniel in both Nebuchadnezzar's vision and the four that Daniel had is a description of what will be at the time of the end when Christ is to return to this earth. It must take place as Daniel has defined it. Now, I'll agree with Seventh-day Adventists in the first open airs they have. They have three weeks. When we're in the islands, they have three weeks. Very good presentation, like a Billy Graham crusade. And they start off with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And they say this. They do Babylon, because then Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue, all right? Now, most of us have some understanding of what, it's, what he saw. He saw a great statue. That's what he saw. And he, said he was totally occupied. He could describe it from top to bottom. He was looking at it. He was astonished at this awesome figure. It's gold head, silver chest and, and arms. It's got bronze thighs down here, iron legs, and its feet and toes, part iron, part clay. So he, he describes it from top to bottom. He's totally occupied with it. And then suddenly he sees a stone come down, descend down, smash the image in its feet, grind them to powder, and then the whole image grinds to power, swept away by a wind, and from the stone, a mountain fills the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said to him, you know, I read my Bible like it happens, all right? It actually happened. Daniel said, as you lay on your bed, these are the thoughts that went through your mind. Your mind turned to things to come, and the God of heaven has revealed it to you to a Gentile king who worshipped the god Bel, an idolatrous man. The God of heaven has revealed it to you, king, so you may know. And you get an interpretation of the nations of the world as they concern the nation of Israel. You're looking at Babylonian empire the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, 
and you can establish that without any ancient history in your understanding just by taking the book of Daniel. You don't need to go out of the book of Daniel. I have not studied ancient history, but I know the order of the empires of this world as God describes them because I have the book of Daniel. And they are exact. That is the order of the kingdoms that control the nation of Israel the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and the Jewish people. The whole thing is Jewish. Where Daniel is concerned, you go to Nebuchadnezzar's vision, it's Gentile, there is not one evidence of Jewish suffering. But you go to the four visions of Daniel, and there's Jewish suffering in every vision. In fact, the first two visions, it says, he goes white, he can't work, he is in shock. He's sick. It's his people, his city, to which he turned every day in prayer because Solomon said, when he erected it, he gave his prayer and appealed that you turn here and God will hear. And every day, three times a day, he would turn and pray toward Jerusalem, towards the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So it's all Jewish suffering. There are seven years that have not happened but are going to happen in our world according to God's revelation to Daniel. It lies ahead. So we have a history book of the history of our world and God has finally to do something to a nation in our world that has been rebellious, killed the prophets, stoned those who God sent to them and finally killed his own son. And that's his nation and that nation God is going to bring back to himself in absolute brokenness. When I see that your power is gone, the holy people, stripped of the power. The strongest nation in the Middle East today is Israel. They trust their army, they trust their air force, and now they trust their navy. There is no other nation equal to that in the whole of the Middle East, and they know it, because they've tried time and time again to wipe them out. So what are they going to do now? Shoot an atomic weapon, that's the plan, and hit Israel by that means. That's why they're there. They've declared their purpose. But no one believes it'll happen. No one believes it's going to happen. You just don't do that kind of thing after Hiroshima and Nagasaki and what happened with an atomic weapon. And the atomic weapons they have today are far more powerful than what hit Japan. People say, no. They don't believe. Israel believes it. They believe that what they're threatening, they're going to do. I don't know what lies ahead and you don't either. But I'll tell you what lies ahead. Your Bible will be accurately fulfilled in exact detail, minute detail for detail. It will be fulfilled. Because the past has been fulfilled. The future, if the past, as it is in the visions of Daniel, as it is in the visions of Nebuchadnezzar, if that has been in order, accurately fulfilled, the last part, will also be accurately fulfilled. So when we turn to the Bible here, I'm going to take you this morning to an area which I, I prefer. I don't like, like dealing with 
judgment and blood and death and all the kinds of things and judgments and plagues and all that kind of thing, that revelation unveils to us lies for the future of our world. We are focused this morning on linking the very beginning to the very end. That means Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 5, the song that we sang. Because the song that you sang is Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive riches and honour and glory and power. Let me take you very quickly. Take your Bibles. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3 and we'll read from verse 20 to verse 24. Genesis chapter 3 and lay the basis for it in this. Now, I had a little word given to my ear before I started that I can go till the quarter past 12. Now, he thought 12 midday. I'm dealing with 12 midnight, all right? So, I've got a long time. <laughs> Take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read it from verse, <coughs> 20, uh, verse um, 20 down to verse 24. Genesis 3, verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. There's no other human on earth that cannot point back, you have come from Adam and Eve. The DNA that is in your body, the original DNA was in the, the bodies of Adam and Eve. All right? So, we have descended, we are in Adam because we have descended from him. Then it says, The Lord God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So he's now dealing with the consequences of their action. They have shamed, they have felt the shame of nakedness because they were covered with the glory of God. And we understand that from later scriptures because your Bible says in the end of Genesis chapter 2, the man and his wife were naked and were unashamed. And the Bible tells you in Romans 3, which you have been studying, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It was our covering and we lost it. Simple as that. When Moses asked for God, he said, I'm gonna, you're going to lead my people up? He said, we cannot go up without your presence. And God promised it. And he said to, he said to God, Sh I beseech you, show me your glory. He said, you can't see my face and live. I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, but you can't see my face and live. No man, even Moses, in the unveiled glory of the personage called God, you cannot stand his presence because he cannot stand sin. To enter God's presence, there must be no sin. Listen to these words. You are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, and you cannot look on sin. Not me, it's the Bible. So God can't look on it. How are you going to stand in his presence? How am I going to stand in his presence when he looks? and you can meet him face to face, there must be no sin on you. No other way you will ever spend eternity with God. If he cannot look on sin, 
How are you going to stand in his presence? No wonder Job asked, how can mortal man be righteous before God? A big question. How can mortal man be righteous before God? And Romans answers that. So I'm going to take you very quickly through because God has provided an understanding that there is only one way we can come to the Father. Only one way. So I'm going to read on through and then I'm going to open out some thoughts because your church, according to the, what I read up here, is called King's Way Fellowship. Am I right? Ah, right, good. Let's read down in our text. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 3, <coughs> verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing God and evil, good and evil, meaning God knew good and evil not because he did it, but because it ended the angelic world. See, already it's present there. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So man cannot eat, live forever unless he takes from the tree of life. Verse 23, So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The ground was not taken from within the garden. The ground was taken from outside the garden to make man and man was put into the garden. That's holy ground, the Garden of Eden. Am I clear? After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And I'm going to pray and we're going to come to one verse which has in it the whole foundation for the gospel we preach. That one verse, verse 24, which we have read, lays the foundation for the whole of the rest of the revelation of God through the whole of the rest of the scriptures. Father, we pray as we come to your word this morning with its rich truths, which the spirit of truth alone can open our eyes to. We ask, Lord, you will minister into every heart bowed before you in humbleness this morning. We ask, Lord, that you will refresh us with the ministry of your Spirit in each of us. Illuminate our minds with understanding. May, Lord, we understand your nature and your ways as we step into your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now I'm going to take you to the New Testament because today I observe churches give their own names to their churches. And I am seeing some very strange names for churches. I see, I see. That's the name of a campus and a church and all the campuses. Uh, Nexus, uh, influencers. I have no idea what they believe. True? I'm not familiar with these words and I don't move in that theme. So when I see these names, I have no idea what they're talking about. I see influencers. Get your influence, yeah, influence. But what do you believe? Now, when I saw Baptist, I could see water baptism by immersion. I understood Baptist. They got a history, a background. It's water. It's baptism by water in immersion. That's a Baptist. When I Presbyterian, which I came out of, that's a presbytery. That's the administration method of the Presbyterian. It's the presbytery. So it's Presbyterian. So the name indicates to me, or used to, when I saw these names, 
some understanding of that church, the body of believers that would meet there, what they held to. They're, they're, but when I see the modern name, I got no understanding, no idea. And sometimes I wonder, even within now the Assembly of God, if you ask them, what do you believe? They have a hard job saying what they believe. A hard job defining what they believe. I trust here you know what you believe. Not because your church says it, but you have a conviction of truth. And you have certain things you hold to and you're not going to give up because you are convinced that's truth. So what about the early church? They never gave themselves a name. The world gave them their name. It's never come to me before except I was thinking about it one day and I thought, yeah, that's right. They didn't make up their own name for themselves. The world gave them their name. Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, we are getting the testimony of Saul before his conversion. When the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, we'll read chapter 9, verse 1, and verse 2 is sufficient for now. Stephen has been killed. Saul was consenting to his death. He had the clothes of those who threw their stones at him and killed him. Next chapter begins. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So he's angry. He's determined to kill the lot. That's his whole attitude. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to what? The way. They identified the early church as the way. They gave the name to the church. The church did not give its own name. The world gave the name of the church. It was known as the way. Now it's only once you'd say, all right, but now I'm going to take you through the book of Acts and show you it is consistent with the early church. Take your Bible, turn to Acts 19. We're with Paul in Ephesus. We're going to read from verse 8. I won't go through the background. Acts 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe. And they publicly maligned what? The way. The message. This church was identified by its message. Its message is the way. That's how the world understood the church. You belong to the way. That's your message, the way. Now by, that, by this time you should be thinking, ah oh, yeah, Jesus said, I am the way. So the world identified the church as the way. It's their message, the way. 
Go on down in your scriptures, and you're down in verse <coughs> chapter 22. Paul is again telling his history. He's before the crowd. They wanted to get rid of him, kill him. And the soldiers came in, remember, and rescued him from the crowd. And verse 2, he gives his defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of what? The way. Tell me, where are you today? Are you a follower of the way? Because the early church was identified by the world. We know your message, it's the way. That's what we call you, the way. Are we identified by the world, by our message? The early church was. The way. So you go through in your Bible, go across in Acts, and you're back in Acts 24, and you're down, I'll just take you, verse 13 here again, he's giving his defence before Felix, the governor. This is what he says, Acts 24, verse 13, they came... They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I was, uh, that I worshipped the God of our fathers as a follower of what? The way. This is, this is where I, you identify. I am a follower of the way. And in the NIV, it's capital W. So they're trying to impose some kind of understanding of the text. So you go down further in your chapter 24 and you're down in verse 22. Then Felix, who was acquainted with the way, meaning, I know what you believe. I know what you teach. It's called the way. They were not, the world was not mistaken with the early church. They were identified by their message and they were called the way. So there is a principle in Scripture, and there, there are other verses as I take you back through Acts further, where the way is constantly mentioned. <coughs> now there is a principle in Scripture in this and which I have imparted to you partly as I've taught over the weekend here, and that's this. When God mentions a subject first, he will build on that subject right through the rest of Scripture consistently on the basis of what he introduced it. He will not change. It will be there. I dealt with you the mixture, and I had to because of the issue of Genesis 6, 1 to 4. The foundation is given in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and I showed from Scripture it is consistent through the whole of the Old Testament, goes on into the New Testament, this mixing up of godly with ungodly. Now we are looking at something that is, finds its foundation in Genesis 3, verse 24. And if you will take your Bible, it's telling about the way. Which way? Genesis 3, 24. What is the way? Now Genesis 3, 24 says he drove out the man. The direction was east. 
he placed at the entrance to the garden cherubim. Creatures that are that impose a, a broken bowing down on the ground of humans because they are so glorious in being. Here are these cherubim. He places them at the entrance to the garden. Cherubim we know from Revelation 4. They cry day and night, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. So they are concerned with the holiness of God. They will let nothing impure into the presence of God. So they are there at the entrance. Man and his wife are driven out. Their backs are toward the entrance and at the entrance there are cherubim of glory. Then not only is that at the entrance, there is a sword. And that sword is sharp. It turns every way, every way. Meaning anyone tries to come in, that sword must take them. The purpose of that sword is to kill anyone who tries to come in. Not only is it a sword to kill, it is a flaming sword. Not only will it kill, it will con convert you to ashes anyone tries to come. That is what God placed at the entrance so man could not go in and have life. He cannot stretch forth his hand and take from the tree of life because to get there he must go through the entrance. It is called the way. That's the first phrase. Underline it put it in, when God puts it there, he will build on that through the rest of Scripture right up to Revelation chapter 5. The way. So you have here a flaming sword, cherubim. You try to have life, you are going to be slain and consumed to ashes by God, who will allow nothing of sin in his presence. So how are you going to have eternal life? What must it take for man to have eternal life? It is impossible for the blood of animals to deal with sin. You cannot. It is humans who have sinned. We brought sin onto the creation. The creation suffers. Animals suffer. Creation suffers because of man's sin. It's man who's to blame. So unless a man representing the whole of humanity takes their place and is sinless and comes to that entrance Bearing the sin of the world, the only way God can allow humanity to come into his presence is to deal with sin. There is no other way. And there is no other method. 
man, the man who comes there must be sinless. He must have no sin. And he must be proven to be sinless. That's why when you came to the Lord's table this morning, when that table was instituted back in the Passover, what kind of bread did they eat? If you're Hebrew, it's matzah, all right? But if we, live, we say it, it is unleavened bread, meaning bread with no yeast in it. Why? What is the action of yeast? It corrupts. It breaks down the carbohydrate, it gives off gas, and you'll get your bread rise like this, that is the bread you buy at the soft bread shop. You can go like this with it, but with unleavened bread, no yeast. If you like it, Indian is roti. All right? You roti and you mix up your curry in it, and that, yeah, that is a nice meal, all right? So you come and you understand God used the teaching of leaven to teach us that Christ would have no sin. When you took that bread this morning at the Lord's table, God was speaking to you again. We remember his death. He was sinless. He was without sin. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That's how he's described. So as the sinless son of God in a flesh and blood mortal body taking the place of humanity, he approached his father and the picture in your Bible that is crystal clear is when God finally tested Abram in Genesis 22. He woke him in the night. He said, Abram, Abram. He said, here am I. Take now your son, your only son. So we have a father-son relationship. There is a unique and only son. He had Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael was by Hagar. But now, this is the son on whom the promise depends for fulfillment. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. All the affections of Abraham are in this unique son who did not come by natural means. It involved the power of life-giving from God to bring about this son's existence. Jesus was born of a woman born under the law. How did it happen? Mary said, how can it be? I do not know a man. And Gabriel said, the, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will come on you. Therefore, that holy thing which will be born of you will be called the Son of God. Now let me add something here, which I left out last night and I was reminded as I was talking with uh, Sam on the way home in the car. It wasn't till years later, after I had wrestled through this question, the sons of God in Genesis 1, 6, uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, are they fallen angels or is it the mixing of the godly line with the ungodly? For the first time it hit me, if I teach, these sons of God are fallen angels. Angels are spirit beings. He makes his angels spirits. His ministers are flame of fire. That's the description. 
Angels are spirits. So if I teach angels as spirits can go into a woman, there's nothing immoral about she's not divorced, she's just a woman. And have a child by that woman, which is taught when it's done right. What have I done? I have said the incarnation meaning Christ is formed in the womb of a woman on earth and I'm saying the same thing happened before the flood. No issue whether they're virgins or not. No question of that. Just the fact that this is what happens. If I say that I am teaching the incarnation, this appearing of God in a body on earth, Emmanuel, God with us, great is the mystery of Godliness, God was seen in the flesh. I'm saying, that's not a miracle, it's done back before the flood. I have just wiped out the greatest mystery the world has ever known apart from the church. There are two great mysteries in your Bible. One is the church, the body of Christ, Great is that, but great is the mystery of Godness. God was seen in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. God has reserved that miracle for himself. He's recorded it in Micah. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that miracle of God who is spirit would bring forth a son into this world. God has reserved that miracle for himself. And I thought, wow, it is serious to say those sons of God were fallen angels. I have just destroyed the greatest miracle that God has kept for himself. So that's aside, leave that. <laughs> but I thought I would lay it because I forgot it last night. So you come <coughs> to this issue. There are cherubim, there is a flaming sword, and the only way we can ever go in is the way must be opened. Unless the way is opened, meaning the sword does its work, the fire does its work, the cherubim observe, because if you realize this, where are the cherubim in the tabernacle or the temple? They are at the mercy seat. There is a mercy seat. Not wrath, mercy the cherubim's faces look on the mercy seat. Every year, once a year, Israel learnt God would deal with sin in a manner that was demonstrated that day. And the high priest alone, he must go alone, he must do exactly as he is instructed, he takes a censer, he puts incense on it, he goes behind the veil, he covers the mercy seat with incense, a cloud, which by the way indicates prayer. You have a, and we mentioned this morning, a heavenly intercessor, the high priest Christ Jesus. He goes in, covers it, sprinkles seven times the blood of a goat, perfect goat, on to the mercy seat and then eastward. Your King James is an excellent translation, not in the NIV. He sprinkles it seven times, then eastward, meaning 
God is satisfied seven times perfection. Eastward means that's where the people are. The tabernacle, the temple, always faced east because Adam and Eve were driven in which direction? Your Bible tells you. You've only got three, north, south, east, west. Which direction were they driven in? Take your choice. You've got four chances of being right. <laughs> east. Driven east. Cain went east because he turned his back on a second offer of mercy and he went east and rebelled totally against God. Adam and Eve were driven out east. What do we learn? Adam and Eve, if you want fellowship with God, what have you got to do? Turn round to face the west, repent, change your direction, change your thinking, come to God. That's what God is teaching. Direction is immediately there. You say, oh, that only occurs there. No, it doesn't. It's all through your Bible. Listen very carefully to this. I'll just take you quickly in certain areas. When God called Abram, he was Abram. It wasn't Abraham, he was Abram. It means proud father. Ishmael, I, I produced him, all right? That, that's what God called him Abram. He changed his name to Abraham because I have made you. I have. That's your works, Abraham. That Ishmael, my work is Isaac. He's a promise and it's my power that will bring about. And we are children of Abraham in the line of Isaac when we believe God's promise and we are born again. Otherwise, you're an Ishmael. So what's happened? Abram goes into the land. We are told he goes into the land. And God meets with him. And he sets up an altar. And he sets up an altar between Bethel and Ai. Those two places, he sets up his altar between those two. Having... Ai on the east, Bethel on the west. Please note, direction is given. True? Ai is on the east, Bethel is on the west. He erects his altar to the God who's appeared to him and since Bethel means Beth house el God, house of God, he's worshipping God, Bethel. So he's facing west. But he's back is towards AI. You know the meaning of AI? Heap of rubbish. What's it mean? I've left my past, it's rubbish. I've turned my back on it and I've come to God. It would not be there unless God indicates direction carries a message. You went away from God to come to God. The foundational, first foundational teaching is repentance. Your Bible tells you in Hebrews chapter 6, there are, they are in pairs of two, 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 two. The first two go together. The foundation of the, the, the whole of salvation is built on repentance from dead works and faith towards God. It means you've got to turn and you've got to come God's way. If you're going to have fellowship with God, there is no other way. If I am going to accept the literal history of the world as it took place in the Garden of Eden, I am faced with the fact we were shut out. There's no way in. 
and the way in was protected so no one could come. So if anyone comes, they would suffer the consequences. So from that point in history, do you know what God has instituted? Our understanding of the whole burnt offering at that point. Up to that point, from there in Genesis, he killed animals, he made skins, and we understood without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We understand that. But what about a whole burnt offering? So what happens? <coughs> when he comes, the sword must do its work because the sword is at the entrance. Tell me, did the sword do its work with Christ? It did. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is there with his disciples and he said to them, all of you will flee from, run from me tonight because it's written, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered and I'll turn my hand on the little ones. Meaning you're going to scatter tonight. Peter said, I won't. Remember, I'm going to go through the story. Where does that come from? Zechariah chapter 13 and the previous verse says this, Awake, O sword! Which sword? You have got to go back to the Garden of Eden to see that sword. It's at the entrance. And he is going to take your place and mine and he is going to go to the tree of life and the consequence of him going that path is that sword must do its work. Awake, O sword, against the man who is my fellow, God says. Smite the shepherd. That's before the sheep will be scattered. It lay just ahead of him. He knew what lay ahead of him. A sword was going to come down. You only see what humans did to him. That's all we see. You can't see behind the scenes. God has lifted up the sword and now it's going to act. The one he put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden and left there till the time of the flood with a consistent testimony, that sword will now come to life. Smite the shepherd. So when you read Isaiah 53, as we said, it's a forbidden chapter for Jews. We esteem him, we value, evaluate him, stricken, smitten by God. The sword came down. And the Father is dealing with sin and killing his own son. Now, Abram didn't have to do that. Remember, he lifted the knife and God called. Why? Wrong sacrifice. Years later, David would do exactly the same thing. He'd number the children of Israel. You are told in that that the angel of the Lord with sword drawn over Jerusalem, ready to come down on Jerusalem, and, and, and David cried, these are innocent sheep. I sinned. And he said, purchase the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. And as he offered there, fire came down from heaven, consumed the offering. And David was frightened to go into the tabernacle and worship God. He used this as his place of meeting with God because of God's mercy to him at that point. You know what that purchase place was? He, he bought it with money. It's Jewish doesn't belong to Islam, it's Jewish. That is the Temple Mount. You're told that in two chronicles. That is the Temple Mount today over which all the issues are involved. Who should be there worshipping? Your Bible teaches us 
that David purchased that with money, names the amount, and he purchased it. He said, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. And the whole purchase price is done there. And fire came down and consumed the offering, meaning God has accepted the substitute in David's place. The wrath has come down. David didn't suffer it. The animal on the altar suffered it. So that's the temple. So what happens as Jesus is on the cross? The sword is doing its work. Is the fire doing its work? Because when David did it, God says, I smell the sweet savour. God says, I smell the sweet savour. When Noah offered, God says, I smell the sweet savour. In Ephesians 5, verse 2, these are the words. <coughs> love one another, we are to love, as Christ has loved us and offered himself. We read, heard this morning, he is both priest and offering. He offered himself without spot to God a sweet-smelling sacrifice. That phrase is reserved in your Bible for the burnt offering. You will find it nowhere else. It is the burnt offering. So Christ became your burnt offering. What's that mean? He opened the way. He took the sword. The fire took him. And the angel, the cherubim that are standing there are seeing God's righteous demands satisfied regarding sin totally and the way is open. How do you know that? We quoted quoted from this morning, I think Hebrews chapter 10 says this, having therefore confidence or boldness to enter, listen to the Bible, the most holy place, meaning you have the temple, you can't go through the veil. That's the most holy place there. You come to the tabernacle, you can't go through the veil. It's a barrier. The most holy place is there. That's where God is. Only once a year in Israel could the high priest ever go like that. So what is the happening? Hebrews chapter 9 says, while it stands, the Holy Spirit is testifying, you can't come. So what happens when Jesus dies? Finishing the work, he yields himself up to God and cries with a loud voice, it is finished. So what did God do? He tore the veil, we are told it. He tore the veil, God tore the veil from top to bottom. The way is open. That's God's testimony to the world. What message does the church have? The way. That's, that's how we're identified. The only way to God is this way. The way. So I'm going to intrude here some scriptures to awaken each of you in our own heart and conscience. Because unless you take that way, you cannot have life. That's where the tree of life is. That's how God pictured it. He is our life. He is risen. He's paid the price fully. He is the way. So the Bible says twice, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 16 says, same verse, there is a way, not the way, there is a way. There are many ways. We are told today many ways lead to God. There is a way. It seems right. 
but the end is death. So the world is covered with people who will fit that scripture. Yeah, I can get into God's presence. It seems right. I'm good. Look at my life. I'm not like others. All kinds of arguments are made. I don't have to come this way. There's a way. Seems right. Cain took it. He labored. He sweated. He produced his evidence. And God rejected him. Abel said, I'm a sinner. Someone has to die in my place. He'd learned from his parents. Cain knew it because God said to Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted? You know what to do, Cain? And Cain rejected the second offer of mercy. Turned his back on God and went his own way. It's called, when you're reading through the book of Jude, called the way of Cain. God has his own way and he's established it. And Jesus said, I am the way. So the early church was identified with a person and the message that went with that person. You cannot separate the two. Are you hearing me clearly? The early church was identified by a person, the man, Christ Jesus, and the work that person did. We believe the record of what we hear. And when we do, he says, you pass from darkness to light, you pass out of the realm of the evil one, his kingdom, and you are taken into the kingdom of his dear son. There is an absolute change takes place when the gospel is believed in the heart and the truth is accepted and applied. You have, not you will have, you have eternal life. You have passed from death to life. So I'm going to leave you and I don't sing. All right, I don't sing because I'm a crow. All right, I know I acknowledge that. All right. But there is a little chorus which I'm going to leave with you and I'm not going to sing, but I'll tell you what it is. I am the way, the truth and the life. That's what, come and sing it, dear. Come up here and sing it so they hear it. <laughs> of course, you're going to listen to my croaky voice. You better listen to a pleasant one. <laughs> Is this your microphone? I'll sing here. You sing that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. So that enforces... So that enforces this morning, I think, condenses the truth of what we have looked at. And let me leave you with the thought. There is a way. We all took it. I took it in my life. I thought I went, I taught Sunday school. I did not know God. But there came a point in my life where I had to realize I needed to be saved God's way. 
I had to come to Christ. I had to come to the Father understanding I was a sinner. And my understanding was I needed my sins forgiven. And there was only one person. A priest can't do it for you. A pastor can't do it for you. A church can't do it for you. Christ must do it for you. Unless he is your salvation, you are on a way that leads to death. A way that leads to life is defined for us in Genesis 3, verse 24. God set it out. Now, I haven't covered all that's in that verse. That is immense. But I have quickly covered this to show you the early church was known as the way. They preached Jesus and Christ and him crucified, his death, burial and resurrection. And they were known for it. Are we known for it? That's the question. God bless you. Thank you very much.